values, and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, I want to remind everybody once again that coming up Saturday, December 10th, is the Red and Blue Day at the Zoo. This is a police and fire appreciation day. The first 1,000 police and fire families that show up at the Wildlife World Zoo, uh, Aquarium, Safari Park and Aquarium are going to get free admission and free rides all day long. It's just our way, along with the great people at Wildlife World Zoo, uh, to say thank you to all the work you do in our community. Bring your kids. Have a great time. Show up with your ID that shows you're a police officer or you work in the fire department. Your family gets in for free. All the details are at KTAR.com, the contest page. And please come join us. It's not going to be a big program. It's just your day. We just want to say thank you. Um, The Black Friday sales, we're going to, I'm going to start in a different place than I did the last time I talked about this because I think it's important. If you don't believe that politics play a role, if you don't believe that policy plays a role in how much money life costs you, you're not paying attention. Now, again, I've said I'm in a position where I like to disagree with people. People don't always agree with me. I have pretty strong opinions. I'm willing to defend my opinions and I want to learn about yours. I I want to go into a conversation trying to understand why you feel the way you do. There are many people out there that believe that. We are on the verge of environmental catastrophe, but we've been hearing that since I was a little kid. So, but the people that believe that believe we are, it is man caused. That's the first thing that we are on the verge. We are standing right on the edge of the environmental cliff. And if drastic measures aren't taken by the entire world, we are all doomed. We are going to get past that point of no return. The problem is I have been hearing that past a point of no return comment and commentary since I was a little boy in the 1970s. So it isn't that I don't want the earth to be cared for, that I want to see the environment demise of anything and the this huge um, extinction of the animal life. I don't want any of that, just like none of you do. Um, I spent the weekend with my grandkids, and I want to watch them become adults and live a healthy life with clean air and clean water. And, and if they become hunters or they become anglers, I want them to be able to go out and enjoy what I enjoy. So it's silly to say otherwise, but if you you have to acknowledge that the path we're on is taking us down a road that is very very expensive. Um, the idea that the, the idea that by 2035 we're going to have the electric vehicles that this administration says we want, first of all, I, I'm telling you is absurd, and it is going to take. You know what kind of an expansion of the electrical grid it's going to take to make that happen? It just can't happen that quickly. I don't care what anybody tells you; it can't happen that quickly. And this is just from a guy, I wasn't an engineer, but I was an electrical contractor. I've designed electrical systems for small buildings, not for major metropolitan areas, but the principles are still the same. It's all about peak demand. It's all about load. It's all about all of those things. So from my little perspective of the things that I see and that I know, I look at an apartment complex. And if some of you live in apartments, imagine if by 2035, the apartment complex you live in has to have 50% of their parking spaces equipped with charging stations so that you can charge your electric vehicles just out of necessity that that's going to need to happen. Do you have any idea that just for that one apartment complex, what they would have to do to their capacity for electricity just to make that happen? It's a nightmare. But some people still believe it's necessary. So I want to go down a different road with policy, and here it is. The administration, the Biden administration, has gone after the American oil companies and gone after them big here in the states. They have restricted drilling. They have restricted exploration. They've gone after financing for both so that it's harder for those companies to get money. 
It is harder for them to refine, which is why we have a shortage of diesel fuel, because it's just not we're not capable of refining enough to keep the trucks on the road going. All of that is true. All of that is true. And there's more coming. And then on top of that, it was the demonization of profiteering and everything else domestically with oil companies. We all know that to be true. You may agree with it, but they're still doing it. That's the issue. You may agree that oil companies are profiteering, but you also have to agree that the White House has gone out and instead of working with the oil companies, has demonized them to the point where they've threatened them with legal action. Well, the same ones, the the oil company Chevron has now been given permission to start drilling again in Venezuela. I mean, just let that sink in for a moment. So if oil, if oil, if, if fossil, let's say fossil fuels in general, if fossil fuels in general are the demise of the world, it is what is causing the huge carbon emissions and it is causing the demise of the planet. Floods and droughts and weather that is worse than ever and these big um, expansions in severe weather in, um, you know, indicators that are happening, whether it's hurricanes or whatever else. If fossil fuels are the problem, why are we allowing more exploration and drilling in Venezuela? Well, part of it has to do with our trying to re- renew and restore relations with their economy. This is a political decision. So for everyone out there that agrees that the oil companies need to get in line and do what they're told and be a part of the solution and be a part of the great transformation to renewable energy and that they should spend billions and billions of dollars that they're not going to get a return on, that they should spend those billions in order to be a part of the transition to solar and to electric vehicles, then why are we okay with them drilling in Venezuela? Why are you okay with it? The answer is you shouldn't be. So we can't do it here. No drilling onshore, no drilling offshore, no drilling on public lands, no more exploration, especially no fracking, no pipelines. None of that here in the U.S. while our gas prices and our diesel prices continue to climb. Make a deal with the Venezuelans to open it up there. To me, it's just it's absolutely ridiculous. Um, this is uh, I want you to hear this is an ABC report. Mary Alice Parks talking about Chevron in Venezuela. The Treasury Department granted Chevron a limited six month lease to start up operations again. It's part of larger talks. The White House says it's a way to acknowledge that the Maduro regime down there is moving in the right direction, at least talking to the opposition party, taking small steps towards democracy. All other sanctions will stay in place right now. So I will ask the question again, if you believe that fossil fuels are leading to the demise of the planet and it is important that we in the U.S. shoulder this burden of higher fuel prices in gasoline in diesel fuel and heating oil, natural gas, all of these fossil fuels, it is necessary for all of us to pay the price and carry the burden of these higher prices all for the good of the planet. Explain to me how it's a good idea to give more oil leases to Venezuela for political reasons. That's why they're doing it. You're starting to treat your people better. You're not as oppressive as a regime as you were before. You got our blessing to do what? Pull oil out of the ground. It it is overtly political. So which is it? Is climate change the number one problem facing the world? If it is, why are you doing Why are you restricting everything in the U.S.? You mean to tell me that the Maduro administration, the regime in in Venezuela, is better 
than the American oil companies on U.S. soil. It is an absolutely absurd thing to say, and you're paying – we're all paying the price for it. Talking about Black Friday sales, which is where the topic was going earlier – And what people are able to spend. People want to have a great holiday season. They're going to want to travel. They want a big Thanksgiving dinner. They're going to buy gifts for the holidays, Christmas, Hanukkah. Otherwise, they're going to do that as we celebrate. We understand that. Um, But how much will they have to spend because of the reality of how much they have to pay? Now, you factor in the possibility of a rail strike in what this turns into as an unmitigated disaster. But why are we not talking about this in political terms? The Biden administration has done everything they can to restrict the exploration and the drilling and refining on U.S. soil, and they're loosening the restrictions in Venezuela. How does anybody that believes we have to stop what we're doing okay with this? It just doesn't make any sense, does it? In a moment, the Department of Justice has asked courts to dismiss the the Ducey or the Governor Ducey case over shipping containers. We'll give you details coming up in just a moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show. KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks so much. I appreciate you spending some time with the show this morning. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving as we sprint toward the Christmas holiday. At least it's Christmas at my house. I want Hanukkah for other families as well. Whatever way you celebrate the season, we hope it's going to be a great one. Um, the Department of Justice uh, asked the federal court to dismiss Ducey case over shipping container border wall. So here it is. The Department of Justice is asking the court to, to dismiss a suit brought by Governor Ducey's administration that tries to claim the state's sovereignty on federal borderland. The motion is the latest filing in a court battle over Ducey's project to create a makeshift border wall of shipping containers. So um, here is what I find interesting about this entire conversation when it comes to the border, maybe anything else. If the Biden administration had any ounce of seriousness about fixing the problems at the border, A, they'd have to acknowledge there was a problem, and they will not. They don't believe there's a problem at all. The vice president of the United States, who was charged with fixing the issues at our southern border, has said that the border is secure. The vast majority of Americans know that that is absolutely not true. But here's the other step that should be taken. Why not talk to the experts? Sometimes you don't get the answers you want to hear, but if you're truly um, focused on fixing a problem, that's what you do. There are men and women who have worked on the border, either as border sheriffs, and not all the border sheriffs agree. Let's be honest. There are a couple of the border sheriffs that are, are Democrats that will tell you that they're fine with the way the border is, the way it is right now. So you're not going to get all the same answers. But collectively speaking, the experts on what's happening at the border, the experts are the people that spend time there. Whether they live in those border towns, they enforce the laws in those border towns, they are responsible for feeding people that are hungry in those border towns, or they are employees of the federal government that are patrolling the border. Why not ask them? Because when you talk to the experts in Yuma, they will tell you that the makeshift shipping containers have had a positive impact on the people that are crossing into Yuma. No one that I know of, no one that I know of believed ever that this was going to be a solution to the problem. It was going to help in Yuma. And that's what it's done. The other part of this is the federal government doing this. Bide your time. Just wait, because it's my belief, not a criticism, an observation. Um, I don't agree with it, but I think what's going to happen 
is one of the first things that our new governor will do at the very minimum is stop this program from continuing. Now, whether or not she orders the removal of the shipping containers and blames it on the federal government saying we're in violation and we don't want to have to fight this in court and spend the state taxpayer money on fighting this in court. So the easiest thing to do is to take those shipping containers down and I'm going to work with the Biden administration and trying to shore up the border and do it the right way instead of doing it the right way. No more politics, no more busing people, no more publicity stunts. I'm writing the speech. I'm writing the speech on when this happens. But that's what happens when elections happen. If our governor right now, if Governor Doug Ducey has the authority to put them in, the next governor has the authority to take them out. And so that is a bigger issue for me. Are you having conversations with the leaders that are saying this is working for us? It is redirecting people. It is still a federal problem, but it is now helping the people of Yuma deal with it in Yuma. I want this border issue fixed like everyone else does. Here's another issue, and this is another indicator of just how bad things are down on the border. This is from the Atlantic. The next, Af- <clears throat> the next Afghan refugee crisis is right here in the U.S., Without congressional action, tens of thousands of Afghans we evacuated to the United States may be deported in the coming year. Now, the rest of the story talks about how we brought refugees into the country. When will they will be sent back to their country if we don't take action? This is more this is a bigger part of the border issue. Most of us and there's never 100 percent of anything. Most Americans, myself included, believe that we should be a nation of refuge, that when someone has great wealth, there comes great responsibility. And the United States should be a place of refuge. And we should make room for people that don't have any place safe to go. And there's rules on safety and specifics about it. But the war-torn country of Afghanistan, and look what's happened since we've left Afghanistan with the Taliban taking over there. Women are actually being punished for getting an education. They have gone back into the dark ages for everything we've done in the U.S. and fighting about equality for women, which I think is absolutely the right thing to do. You should be, you should get paid with a job as worth no matter what your gender is. Women should have the same opportunities as men. If you can do the job, you should get the job. I believe in all of that. I've got girls. My mother is my hero. I've got a granddaughter. I want opportunity for them in any part of the world they want to be a part of. Then you look at how far back Afghanistan has regressed and where they have gone backwards in human rights, especially when it pertains to women. They're treated like property again. They're not allowed to be educated again. None of that is available to them. So we have refugees in this country that are maybe deported. It just shows you how messed up our immigration system is here. We are so overtaken at the southern border with people that are being processed through that have absolutely no legitimate claim to asylum. And then the ones that do have this legitimate claim to asylum stand in line and wait to be heard because they're in line with people that don't belong here. This is another indicator of how the failures have been so extreme in the last couple of years. And I just hope that we get our arms around it. I hope we no longer look at this as a partisan political issue. This is a human rights issue. This is a right versus wrong, not right versus left issue. And we are failing. As Americans, this should be our source of pride for us. Immigration should be a source of pride in how we handle the overwhelming number of people that want to come here. Instead, it's an embarrassment. We should be ashamed of ourselves. In a moment, a huge shift. Are we seeing it when it comes to colleges versus trades for young people? We'll talk about it coming up here in just a moment.
values, and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. I sure do appreciate you uh, joining us this morning. A little programming note coming up just after 11 o'clock. The data guru from ABC 15, Garrett Archer, is going to join the show to talk about the numbers in Maricopa County. Disenfranchised voters, or at least voting locations, how many people were actually affected, how many voters were actually affected with the machines, and what happened on Election Day as Maricopa County is voting today to certify or not. We'll find out which. Today is a big day in Maricopa County for the vote moving forward to find out if all of these elections will be certified and that the elections will stand as the way they are. There is a recount that is happening in the attorney general's race. So we'll get to all of that stuff happening just after 11 o'clock. This is an interesting headline. Building trades seek youth to fill jobs. And this is a story from the East Valley Tribune. Um, Learning lessons from the pandemic losses. And uh, employers are rethinking the need for college degrees in a tight labor market. So there's a couple of things at play here. Um, And one of them is the tight labor market where many places require a college degree. They're rethinking whether or not that's necessary. But there are a lot of people that are rethinking whether or not to go to college at all. And I will say to you that as I sit here, I am someone that regrets that I don't have a college degree. I am considering even at my advanced age of going back to school and getting my degree. I've looked into the poli science program at Arizona Christian University. I've looked in a couple of other degree programs at GCU. And uh, I would love to be get a degree just so that I can say that I had the discipline to do the co- coursework to get the degree. To me, it would be a huge accomplishment. But I'm also in my career. I make decent money and I'm not worried about having to pay back student loans and make it a job that doesn't pay me enough to pay the student loans. Everything in the world and changes. That doesn't mean it's bad. Everything changes. There was a time in this world that one of the in this country that one of the most safest and most uh, well paid, well cared for jobs was a telephone operator. Most of you don't have any idea what a telephone operator is. But the industry has changed. It's become all digital. We don't have that anymore. We used to have to dial four one one in order to get a phone number. You know what I'm saying? I mean, the world was different. Education has got to change. Doing it the way we've done it for all these years. And what's interesting is uh, Dr. Crow at ASU, who I've had on this show many times. Dr. Crow has turned ASU around. And it is known for its innovation. Again, it's won the award again for most innovative university once again. And the innovation has got to start again when it comes to – how we educate people. Uh, I've talked about my affinity for the sea Teds. I think they are amazing places. Um, I just had lunch. Uh, I'm going to talk about the sea Teds in a minute because that's trades in general. But I just had lunch a week or so ago uh, with former Governor Fife Symington with his son and with the president of Arizona Culinary Institute because that Fife Symington owns that. And it, it has 101 students in it right now. And the job placement is, I think, if it's not 100 percent, it's very close. And these are people that understand that they can go through a program that takes six months or a year to get themselves with a foot in the door in an industry that is exploding and that will feed your family for a lifetime at very little expense compared to a college degree. And why wouldn't they? You know, it's an amazing place. The students are well taught. 
It's got a great reputation. And somebody that goes through this program, it's usually mostly young people that go through this program, understand just like a tradesman or a tradeswoman out there, anybody that is in the trade, you understand that once you get to that level of achievement, well, we call it a journeyman in the trades. Once you become a journeyman, that you are set because it is in such high demand, meaning you can make a very nice living. You can be treated well by an employer, get a benefit package, set money aside for your retirement, put your kids through college, live the American dream, buy a home. You can do all of these things and not be burdened with a college degree and the expense that comes with it. That doesn't mean that there aren't people out there. If you're going to be a nurse or you're going to be in any of these other fields where it shows you that it is a huge expense to go to school and get those degrees, but once you have them, you're making really big money. There's no doubt about that. But there's a balance somewhere there, somewhere in between, right? For me, when I was in the 1980s when I was a kid, there was one, there was one way of doing it, and that was college. If you weren't in college, you were a statistic, I got lucky. I got into a trade I loved. I made good money. I moved to Arizona, not knowing a soul in the industry, found a job, went to work, and had my own company. Would have never thought for someone that barely finished high school that I would have my own business. And the trades afforded that to me. So there has got to be a balance. The education system, K through 12, is changing. Whether they like it or not, it's changing. School choice, the ESA expansion is changing public education. Charter schools, home schools, micro schools, all of these other options are changing public education, K through 12. No doubt about it. The college systems need to change as well. Offering people something that's less expensive. You look at what the CTEDs have done, and there are so many and so many um, things about them. I talk about EVIT because that's the one I'm most closely associated with, the East Valley Institute of Technology. And a CTED is a career te- technical education district where they are in one part of town and districts in the East Valley send their kids to these schools. Most of these kids, when you go there, when, and I've spoken at the graduation two years in a row at EVIT, they ask the superintendent, Uh, Dr. Wilson asks, he says, how many of you are going on to college? And it's a huge number of kids that are not going straight into the workforce, but they're going to take these skills that may put them through college. Many of them going into the military, many of them going into the workforce with a set of skills that will feed them for life. Now, at 18 years old, when you get out of high school, you don't realize what an asset that is to have that training, to have those in your tool belt, so to speak. No pun intended. They do when they get older. But there's there's something in the middle that's going to happen, I, I think, with schools because um, there is a big push to get veterans to enter the trades, to get high school kids to enter the trades. Uh, there's a big push by unions. There's an organization called Build Your Future Arizona um, that is specifically targeting young people to get them into the trades, whatever those trades are, to get them trained and in the workforce. And I just think that we are going to see a huge explosion in the middle class where a lot of these people are going to go through one year, two year, three year four years of training on the job while they're making money it's not going to have a huge burden of financial you know financial burden for the rest of their lives and they're going to come out on top and I, I just think that if we don't take a look at this and say we need to revamp how we educate and how we approach education the idea of a four-year university saddled with debt because it's going to give you a job that pays off those debt isn't the same now as it was 10 15 20 years ago education's got to change with it and i hope that it does
I hope that it does. In a moment, we're going to talk about the Phoenix Police Department. The interim police chief, Sullivan, is uh, come up with a four-point plan of how they want to improve the Phoenix Police Department. Will it be effective, and what are the changes? We'll talk about both of those coming up here in just a moment. Values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, a quick reminder, about 15 minutes from right now, Garrett Archer, the data guru over at ABC 15, joins us to talk about the actual numbers in Maricopa County and who were affected by those printer issues in Maricopa County on Election Day as Maricopa County gets ready to vote about the canvas of the uh, election in Maricopa County. Big day on the voting front, so we'll talk with Garrett Archer at about 11.05, 15 minutes from now. The interim police chief in Phoenix, this is a story that you could read over at KTAR.com right now. Uh, Suelen Rivera wrote the story. Um, Interim Phoenix police chief unveils four-part plan to improve the police department. And then in a release, in a press release, um, there are the four things that Chief Sullivan has outlined. One is reinforced patrol briefing training on time, distance, and cover. Arranging for national best practice scenario-based training on de-escalation, reviewing the department's use of force policy, and expanding the department's less lethal program. There are two things at play in my mind when when stuff like this is going on. Um, I do believe, honestly, I believe that anything that is effective in diminishing violence – Police officers welcome. And I know that's not a popular opinion to take in some places, that there are some people that believe the police want to be violent. I will tell you um, that's not the case. And, you know, you don't have to believe me. You're going to it's what your eyes tell you. But I, I just know it for a fact. I've seen it. I've seen police officers use a lot more restraint than I ever would have. I'll, I'll give you two very quick stories that I witnessed with my own eyes. One had to do with a uh, a high-speed chase and two guys – an armed robbery took place. Officers in an undercover vehicle tried to intervene and arrest these guys as they tried to escape. They tried to run the cops over with their car. They made a legit attempt, slammed into the police vehicle, trying to run police officers over. And then as a chase, this was in rush hour traffic through the streets of Phoenix. 35th Avenue and Indian School is where it started and it ended somewhere around 55th Avenue and Van Buren. And uh, I was not a part of the chase because I was – a a civilian observer, but I could hear everything going on on the radios. Um, when police deployed stop sticks, the suspects tried to run over another police officer, another legit attempt at killing a police officer. They were able to get the stop sticks employed. They got the kids out of the car. They got them on the ground. They handcuffed them, and they put them in a police car. Now, just between us, if you or I were in a scenario where somebody tried to run us over or our friends over and we caught the people, what would you do? There wasn't a punch thrown. As a matter of fact, it was summertime and the asphalt was hot. One of the kids was shirtless. These were young guys, by the way. Um, and after they got these kids in handcuffs, the cops walked away. They were flexing their hands open and closed, you know, doing um, de-escalation in your own mind, getting, you know, calming down. Then they poured water in these kids and on these kids to cool them off on their where their skin was touching the ground and giving them water to drink because it was a hot day. I want you to think if you would be doing that if somebody did that to you. Or someone that you really cared about. The other scenario was before a holiday party where um, a, a girl had taken her boyfriend to a family party 
and the family, the brothers were all there, and he smacked his girlfriend in front of her brothers. Everybody had been drinking. When the police showed up, the boyfriend was arrested. The girl was holding an ice pack on her nose or her eye, and the brothers wanted to go into the police car and get this guy. And the cops were standing there. There was eight or ten cops, and they kept saying to these guys in a very measured voice, very low-key, hey, listen. Don't let it ruin your night. He's going to jail. Just go enjoy the party. Don't let this ruin your holidays. Just relax. Calm down. These guys were cussing and screaming and pointing over the cop's shoulders and screaming at the cops and screaming at the car. Cops never raised their voice. Not one. And finally, one of these guys pushed one of the cops to get past him to get to the patrol car. Cop almost fell to the ground, so he had to be arrested. Then all hell broke loose, and it was a shouting match. And only one guy was arrested. My point is that police officers use a great amount of restraint. Whether you ever see – the only time you you see a police officer in action usually is when they're killed in the line of duty or they've done something perceived to be wrong. But every cop, if there is a way to de-escalate so you don't have to go hands-on, you work that many hours and that many shifts for that many days and years in policing. Trust me. You don't want to tackle anybody. You don't want fights. You don't. You certainly don't want deadly force. You just want to do your job. You want to keep the public safe. But we also understand it's a dangerous job. That's where the two things come into play, that you are dealing usually with the 10 percent of society that are criminals. The people that reoffend and reoffend and reoffend. So you've got to be backed up when you have to do that. When 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 reasonable force is necessary. When the de-escalation tactics don't work. So I would look at this four-point plan and I would say the chief's on to something. And a lot of cops are going to like it. If there's brand new techniques of de-escalation that prevent police officers from having to get physically involved in an altercation, they would take it in a heartbeat. But they also need to know that city management and police management are going to back them when they have to do it. What's called going hands-on when it becomes a physical altercation because in the end, at the end of every shift – The goal for law enforcement is to go home safe. Go hug your family at the end of your shift. And they have to know that if in order to do that, it has to become physical, that their play will be backed by city management and police management. And I have no reason to doubt that this police chief is going to do that. But having new techniques does not make you a weaker police department. And I don't think cops even believe that. They want more tools. They want more training. They want things that make them better at their jobs. And hopefully that's what all of this is going to do. Maricopa County is voting about the canvas of the election in Maricopa County that's gotten so much attention. And so we're going to talk about that in a few moments. And there are some statistics that were posted by uh, Garrett Archer, who was known as the data guru over at ABC 15, our news partners. He's going to join me to talk about that number and what it really means. All that's coming up next.